Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show today, so let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet Sonny McFadden Curtis, director of Broken Vows, Stories of Separation, a new documentary that takes you into the lives of women experiencing separation. A little bit more on that later. We'll also meet Mark O'Brien. As an actor, Mark is one of the stars of Showtime's City on a Hill, starring opposite Kevin Bacon in a show that's produced by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. You've seen him on the Amazon series The Last Tycoon, opposite Kelsey Grammer, and we'll soon see him in the recurring guest star role of ambitious Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Thomas Milligan in the second season of HBO's popular Perry Mason reboot. Today, we talk about The Righteous, his debut as a feature film director. Oh, and get this, he also wrote it and stars in it as well as Aaron, a mysterious young man who turns the life of a former priest upside down. More on that just a little bit later. First, let's get to know author Eugene Martin. His powerful latest novel, Pure Life, is the sprawling story of the rise and fall of a former professional American football player named 19, who claws his way from a working-class background to wealth and fame before losing everything. Eugene Martin joined me via Zoom. This book is set against the backdrop of sports, but the themes of ambition, of, of keeping dreams alive are completely universal. So let's talk a little bit, firstly, about what it was that drew you to the world of sports and specifically football uh, as the basis for the book. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> I'm a bit of a fan um, of the game. And, uh, but it, it actually didn't start with sports. It started with the setting of mm. uh, Central America where you know, I spent a little time and, and, and thought, well, there's uh, definitely something to be had here, but uh, uh, didn't have anyone to put in that setting. Then right. um, I, I uh, came across uh, some articles about uh, some uh, former athletes who were uh, going through hard times in their, their post-career uh, stories. And uh, uh, some of these situations are really difficult and humiliating. Um, uh, you know, definitely something that needs to be survived. And I found that really compelling, uh, that that idea of the, uh, you know, the, of the story after the glory and, and, mm -hmm. and so on. And so then I thought, well, how about, you know, I put this guy kind of a composite character, you know, in addition to being created um, as much as anything is and uh, put him in that, that setting and then had to find something for him to do, which, you know, eventually came across. Uh, with uh, my wife's help um, and uh, so that that's how that came to be it wasn't I wasn't looking at sports per se really mm. you know didn't have any thought about ever doing that at all which uh, which is probably the best way for things to happen when they sneak up on you like that right well you were living in Costa Rica when you uh, yeah. had this idea and was there an event that triggered it did, or did you just see someone across a bar and go i wonder what that guy's story is and then your your mind starts to to ramble a little bit and you start imagining what that scenario was that brought that person there it might have been the, the location where we were staying <clears throat> which was uh a, a kind of development um although not what development is and like you know the urban setting we have here mm -hmm. but uh it was kind of a, a sort of remote upland jungle 
thing or the, someone had built a few casitas into a kind of compound. Right. And so there was this uh, uh, sense of isolation already and an extremely exotic, abundant wildlife like I'd never seen before. It was, um, I mean, things just show up on your door, doorstep. Um, and uh, that in combination with, with some of the expatriate characters we mm -hmm. would meet, you know, who um, generally are kind of an opportunistic lot, I thought. Um, and, uh, you know, their relation to the, uh, you know, the, 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 the local people, um, uh, I think all of that was sort of a catalyst. But I mean, I really couldn't think, well, what could this be about, you know, and it was uh, a few years till things sort of gestated to the point, you know. Where we get where we wind up with uh, this novel yeah. in our hands, and yeah. you talk about being a football fan, and I thought that as I was reading this, because the way you describe uh, a couple of things uh, in this book really made me think. Okay, he's either played or certainly has watched a ton of of football. Um, when you talk about how uh, ribs break, you know, against the turf, about um, you know, and how they never quite set again correctly um the just little details like that bring a richness to the story and also tell us a lot about what we need to know about the character 19 who is the main character of the book um it tells us a, a lot without actually uh, having to expend a great deal of exposition explaining about him. We learn about him through a lot of the action uh, like that. And that is, I think, someone who's spent a lot of time watching football who would understand what that would be like. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I played a little, but, yeah. uh, you know, never broke any ribs or anything. And, um, you know, never at, at any uh, high level. But um, some of that just comes from a, a seeking a way to, you know, render something that avoids the usual play by play language that, you know, right. you, when you read about the game the next day or, or, you know, there was like, you know, there was third and five and he threw for two yards or, you know, yeah, yeah. all that. Um, I just, you know, th through drafting and redrafting, kept looking for a, a fresh way to say things and to, you know, think of it as like, not as something I'm watching on a screen, but something I have a, um, a more intimate, you know, point of view. And, and so it just came to, you know, trying to cultivate the imagination to, to look at it that way, to see it as um, people in a space having this, this kind of violent conversation. And um, so, you know, uh, try to think of it in terms of, of um, other actions that can be described as being in, in some ways not so different, mm -hmm. you know. And, um, to, and then bring the reader in that way. You're listening to Eugene Martin on The Richard Krause Show. Find his novel, Pure Life, wherever fine books are sold. You, know. you talk about draft after draft. Are you a writer that believes that the art of writing is in the rewriting? For me, it is, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, once in a while, you get it the first time or close to it, you know. Um, but uh, uh, I actually enjoy drafting. And, and it... it relaxes the um uh the process a bit so you're you're allowed to suck a little bit you know in the early things right. and right. you know the uh <laughs> i think for the um the, the, the early drafts were about putting the story and events in order right and uh then as you go you you start to refine the language and and try to look for that kind of uh synthesis of your your style and your content and um 
but uh, yeah, definitely, uh, there's the danger of, of to, to me, it's a, it's a process of bringing something to life slowly, but there is mm -hmm. a danger of overdoing it and, and killing things. But I think I've gotten better at that. Well, is it difficult to know when to let it go? If you like um, to go back and, and have a look, I know I, I have trouble with my books of letting them go. Uh, but uh, usually I have an editor that says, this one's done. <laughs> it's great to have a deadline, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was that was helpful. Uh, yeah, and and and, and finishing um, or, or convincing yourself that you're finished—that's a whole process in itself, and a whole mm -hmm. mind game. Um, and again, the editor is you know real important there because sometimes you just need someone to assuage those final doubts. Like, is this done? Could this be better? Right. And. Uh, um, uh, so yeah, that that's when that that other pair of eyes is, is helpful. But um, I, I once changed one of my books between the first and second printing, and then I realized I really have to let this go. <laughs> um, I relate to that. I would do something yeah. like that yeah. if, if I can. I, I was constantly asking my editor, you know, can I do this? Just you know, and 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 you know, it's like, and this will be the last one, I promise. And and you know, <laughs> and I meant it at, at, at the time. Uh, so yeah, I have um, another book coming out next year. That's uh, they're republishing, and and I've been revising that. I just right. to me, it's it's the the book is like, is a living document, and right. you know, that's how we live. What do you think that pure life says about? I guess the fallen idols, people who have once had it all and seen it ripped away from them. Why do you think we're fascinated by those people? Well, it's um, to me, it's it's a very compelling situation. You know, it's hard not to have sympathy uh, with someone like that. I think uh, I, I was once talking to a guy and he was um, he was telling me about this this police cop show he was watching on TV and like he was, you know, really extolling it. And I said, well, you know, I just have a hard time sympathizing with with cops or rich people because they already have all the power. And then, of course, having said that, I got to think on it. Well, you know, what kind of writer would would say that? And then I think this was an opportunity to, um, uh, you know, explore that material. You know, here's a guy who's, you know, had it all. Like there's there's like who doesn't envy, you know, the professional quarterback who's actually, mm -hmm. you know, uh, winning some games and, and, um, uh, you know, one theme of the book is that there's a, a price to pay for everything, you know, and, and he's, he's really paying. Um, so yeah, I, I think that kind of, uh, the desperation, the decline, the, the sunset, the fall, all that stuff, I, I, it just, it, I find it generates language for me. And I think it's something that people will be endlessly fascinated by. So Eugene, thank you so much for uh, talking to me today about uh, Pure Life. I thank appreciate you. it. Yeah. yeah, it was great being here. That was Eugene Martin on The Richard Krause Show. Find his powerful new novel, Pure Life, wherever fine books are sold. I want you to meet Mark O'Brien. Born in Newfoundland, now living in Los Angeles, Mark has an incredible career brewing for himself. He is one of the stars of Showtime's City on a Hill, produced by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. He co-stars with Kevin Bacon. You've seen him on the Amazon series The Last Tycoon, working opposite Kelsey Grammer, and you'll soon see him 
in the recurring guest role of an ambitious Los Angeles deputy district attorney called Thomas Milligan in the second season of HBO's popular Perry Mason reboot. Today we talk about The Righteous, his debut as a feature film director. And get this, he also wrote it and he stars in it as well, as Aaron, a mysterious young man who turns the life of a former priest upside down. He's a very talented guy. Let's get to Mark O'Brien, who joined me via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. This is crazy. Is it? Can you tell me what the voice of God sounds like? Sin. It can possess. You can't run from this. Your punishment, you don't get to choose the conditions. It can make us see things and hear things. Does God scare you more than the devil? Is that it? Yes! Why? Because! Be careful what you wish for, but be certain what you pray for. Congratulations on The Righteous. Thanks, man. So what are we calling this? I was watching it. I think it's elevated horror because for me, it's kind of a slow burn. You know, it, it, it takes a little while to get where it's going in an interesting way. Uh, it's about the words. It's about the, the these long, amazing uh, scenes set over a kitchen table where there's, you know, great acting and really uh, interesting uh, things being said that move the story forward, that giving you a, a, a deeper sense of what's going on. And that to me, when I say elevated horror, it just means that I'm using my imagination, I'm using my mind, and it's not jump scares and and axes through foreheads yeah and and that's really kind of what i wanted to achieve because i i i recently got into horror and kind of more genre type films and i, and I really i noticed that the ones that don't work have this they all have a great premise generally almost yeah. every horror movie is like a pretty good premise and then sometimes it falls by the wayside because it gives into so many tropes and and perhaps that's you know for financial reasons or studio reasons or, or what have you and where I, I kind of, this was such a small movie, I was given like kind of a kind of free reign that I wanted to take it into places that I always want those movies to go. And, you know, I, I kind of, I'm a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin, as I think we all are. And I always, I thought one day, wouldn't it be cool, like years ago, as a fan, I was watching one of his films, I can't remember, maybe, maybe it was A Few Good Men, actually. And, uh, and, uh, and I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if Aaron Sorkin did a horror movie, like that would be so interesting because everything the person would say would needle at the, it would be the words that does it. And honestly, I haven't really thought about that again until now. So perhaps that was, that was deep in the recesses of my mind somewhere like that idea that Sexy Beast is a huge uh, influence on this, this movie in the sense that it's like, it is the words, it's, it's, it's the nudging, it's the needling at someone that I think is really entertaining to watch. Like trying to push someone to do something is always entertaining. So that's why it became a lot about just sitting across from one another, pushing and pushing, pushing, which even though it's not like explosions and it's not all those things, I kind of find it hard to turn away from when I see that in a movie. You're listening to Mark O'Brien on The Richard Krause Show. His directorial debut, The Righteous, is in theaters on June 3rd. Check your local listings. You say that you've been wanting to make a movie since you were 18 years old. Uh, is this the movie that you've been thinking of for the last however many years that is? No. Um, I wanted to make other movies, and thankfully I never got to make them. <laughs> because... <laughs> 
they probably wouldn't have been very good. Um, and I think that's kind of uh, how it goes for filmmakers. There's so many movies that I think a lot of filmmakers are like, I'm glad I never made that. I'm glad that one didn't work out. So it was like, this was the one that had to work out. And I only wrote it, um, I mean, we finished shooting it at the end of 2019 and we, we were really delayed in post because of COVID. Um, but I had only written it about a year and a half prior to that. So it was pretty fresh. Uh, so it was not the one I always wanted to make, but it ended up being the one I always wanted to make. And uh, you shot in 15 days, but there were some uh, complications with that, from what I understand, because you were actually making another movie at the same time. So this was shot in Newfoundland. The other film was shot in New Orleans. So, you know, I can't imagine really two more distant and difficult places to get to, you know, back and forth. You weren't going back and forth, were you? Not the entire time. I did as much as I could. Um, it's not exactly a direct flight from, you know, yeah. New Orleans to St. John's. So <laughs> Uh, what I did was it was a six week shoot. I was doing um, Blue Bayou and uh, I, the, I, I shot throughout that film. I was very, my days were very spread out. And then we found a four day window that I could go back to Newfoundland. So we talked to the producers of Blue Bayou and I was like, I gotta get home. I gotta get home to do this. So we went there for four days and we found our, had our locations and everything. We, we prepped as much as we could. Then the crew stayed there because a lot of the crew is Newfoundland based, but some of them weren't like my production designer, and my DP or live in Toronto. They're from Newfoundland, but they live in Toronto. So they stayed there. I went back three weeks to New Orleans to finish shooting and then came back to St. John's for three days of prep. And then we shot the next day we started shooting. So it was very intense, but um, we talked every day. Like, you know, there were a lot of, I mean, I was sending them movie references and we were going back and forth so much that actually we didn't really feel like we were unprepared when we started filming. I think it was because the film, you learn a lot as an actor when you work with directors who it's like the film is really in their head and, and they just know what they're doing and they're willing to throw it away. And I knew, I was like, that's why this movie was the one for me. It was just like, I just know this. I know this really well. And therefore I can communicate to others really well. And therefore they can communicate back to me really well because we all know what we're making. We're not finding it on the day. But there's a little piece of that finding it on the day, which is always fun. You've worked uh, now so much with really high-level directors. Do you uh, see yourself or did you feel yourself while you were making The Righteous uh, taking some advice that maybe you picked up by osmosis just from being on so many film and television sets over the last uh, you know, decade of your career? Yeah, I, it all becomes kind of foundational, you know? It's, it's like the stuff like that you don't even need to consciously think of because you've, you've, you've been there so much and you soak it in. And like something I always say for this film, when people say, oh, are you influenced by Bergman? And I'm like, well, I, I don't even need to think about being influenced by Bergman because his movies are such a part of my foundation of my artistic interests. So um, kind of like that with working with other filmmakers, it becomes part of who you are and the way you do things because you see what works. It's almost like a child learning how to, you know, <laughs> how to tie their laces eventually. It's just like they're just so used to people doing it for them and watching it that they can just do it. But there were some specific things. I did a movie with Jason Reitman called The Front Runner, which I'm very proud of. And uh, he's a great director. And I mean, you know, his, his father, um, God rest his soul, uh, Ivan Reitman was a huge influence on Jason. And I remember one day we were doing this big setup uh, in The Front Runner and it was a big Warner. 
and we're doing it all morning, all morning, just shooting this one. It was almost showing all the characters, started on Hugh Jackman, then went to this character and this character, then to me, and then to someone else, and all morning, this, tons of extras. And we were about to go to lunch, and I was over by the monitors just chatting with Jason, but something else while they were setting something up. And then finally, Jason just said, nah, we're not going to do that anymore. I was like, what? We're not going to do that We've been working on it all morning. You've been talking, and he's been, he'd been talking about it for like a few weeks. He was like, no, it's not the movie. He was like, my dad told me once at a certain point, your movie starts talking to you and you got to listen. And I need to listen right now. This is not the movie. And there were a couple moments of that. I think that's something that you can always use almost every day as a director, really. Oh, this is becoming that. Okay, well, let's let's move it in this direction. So specifically, that was one thing. And just, um, I also think just moving quickly, like you learn that from television is, is important. Don't rush, but move quickly because it keeps everyone inspired. Morale amongst the group of the crew, I think, is is paramount. You're listening to Mark O'Brien on The Richard Krause Show. His new film, one that he directed, produced, wrote, and stars in, is called The Righteous, and it's in theaters on June 3rd. Check your local listings for a theater near you. The amount of waiting around on a film set is something that I think people will not understand unless you've actually been on a film set and see how much people sit around doing nothing, just waiting yeah, for that. It, it weirdly drains you and yeah. because you're just you're sitting there doing nothing and then you're like now i have to be on and do the maybe the biggest scene of my life so it's it's a bizarre thing and i think when you can keep the energy up and the interest up amongst everyone while also making sure you're having a good time you'll have a better product if everyone's having a good time the movie will be better no matter what it just in my experience you wrote this as well and you were talking about at a certain point, the movie starts to speak to you. Douglas Copeland told me one time that when he's writing uh, his novels, when he's writing his books, it's almost like the characters are sitting on his shoulders and they're kind of whispering in his ear what they want to say or the dialogue that they want to say or where they want the story to go. Um, did you find at a certain point that the script started to speak to you as well in the same way that the film did? When you well, were shooting it? in a way, yeah, because... When you really know what, first of all, I can't start writing unless I know the whole story in my head. I don't really like do, some people do these like 60 page outlines. I don't do that. It's like, it's in my head and then it's going to evolve anyway as you're writing. And so you have to be aware that it's going to change anyway. It's almost like doing a rehearsal. Every page you write is a rehearsal really because it's going to change and you're going to learn something from it. But when you really know what everybody wants and why they want it, then it, they do start to speak to you. You know what they would say to that. And that's and part of that I learned from being an actor too, where you're like, well, why would I say this? There's, I don't want that. And, and I don't like this person. Why am I often talking? Like, you're mo I think actors who write, from my experience, myself excluded, when I read um, actors' scripts, motivations are very clear often. <laughs> that's one thing I notice. Actors write motivations clearly because that's what we always do every day. So therefore, the writing of the characters become become quite quite natural. It just kind of is just flowing. It's very fluid. You're just like, oh, it's working because I know what they want and why they don't want this and what they want in this scene. And every scene too is 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 still you're pounding the theme in every single scene. Every scene should be the same, except a mile down the road, <laughs> kind right. of. Right. So when you know where that where that road is going, then it's just like it's kind of it's smooth sailing. The worst is when you're you, your plot gets too complicated. And I've realized some of the, my favorite movies, I, I'm a big film noir fan, and I think it's because of a clear path. 
when when on so this Altman always blows my mind that he can have these ensembles and it, was, and it still works. Like I'm like, how does yeah. this work? There's a thousand characters. Uh, I find, but those movies are are difficult. I think to achieve. Like what Robert Altman did was very rare. Not many people do. You know, once in a generational talent. Though. You know, that's a, it's a it's a different thing when you look at a film made by Robert Altman as as opposed to uh, many others. Let's talk about Aaron, the character that you play here and writing him. He's an enigma in some ways. It's difficult to know uh, what he is saying, is, whether what he is saying is the truth or not, particularly sort of at the beginning. And then as and uh, I'm talking around a lot of things that happen here because we don't want to give anything away. But, you know, as the the story continues, he starts making some demands and you have to really start doing the math in your head about whether you feel that this is true, whether it's, whether he's mentally ill and there's something coming from that. Like we, we just, we kind of don't know for a long time uh, what's happening here. Tell me a little bit about getting inside the head of a character like Aaron, not only as a writer, but a, well, as an actor, I guess, because you wrote him, you, you're already there, but tell me a little bit about the creation of him. Well, first of all, I really, a lot of this movie, the, the, a lot of the excitement I had while I was writing it and we were prepping it was, taking a preconceived notion of something and, and turning it on its head. You're listening to Mark O'Brien on The Richard Krause Show. Find his new film, The Righteous, in theaters on June 3rd. Check your local listings for a theater near you. Those are my favorite films. When you think you like, oh, this is sort of about that, and then it ends up becoming about something totally different. And so The Stranger in the House, which is kind of what this movie, we've seen versions of that many, many times. But if you switch it into something that you're like, I don't really know what this is going to be, and I do think there's a certain idea that as soon as Aaron shows up, you're like, he's bad news. Right. So, so if you keep twisting that and turning it in different ways, you, you don't know what he is. And, it may, and I think it makes you want to keep watching. And it makes me as a storyteller or as a story watcher a lot of times in films or, or, or novels, it's like, oh, what are they going to do? I don't know what they're going to do. But I am confident that the writer knows what they're going to do. <laughs> So it's a fine balance. You need to know, you know what I, it's like yeah. the first five minutes of the movie, you can tell if you're in good hands or not. Yeah. And, and, and so I had a lot of fun writing that character because he's ingratiating himself. And we all do that when we want something, like you said, he makes certain demands later, but you can't do that unless you ingratiate yourself first. And that was one of the, the things I realized as I was writing, it. I was like, Oh, it has to be ingratiating. And I was like, what's a way to ingratiate someone. It's like being needy when you, when you're helpless, when you need something. And and then people are, oh, well, well, we should help him. We should do that, especially someone who's like, you know, a, a man of God and a woman of God. So I, I, I like that once you start there, then it's like almost you can kind of almost do anything. So, you know, I, I love a character that we want to see again because we don't know where they're going to go with anything. And and that to me is just it's such a treat. It's, it's kind of like, um, you know, I, I can't help but talk about some of these filmmakers I love like Paul Verhoeven and stuff where mm. these kinds of guys where you're like I don't I gotta keep watching but I don't really know why it's despite <laughs> myself like why are they doing this to me <laughs> and and you're teasing it out and, and all these kinds of things but at the at the root of it and for me as an actor it's like there's an emotional core and without giving too much away in the film it's like rather than just make someone one thing there's actually more underneath that mm -hmm. and I think each character has that for Mimi Kuzik who plays um uh, Frederick's wife in the film, uh, Henry Cherney's character's wife. 
she has a, she has a scene where it's sort of a she talks about a dream she had and I, and that that scene to me was like it doesn't it, it doesn't really have that much to do with the plot per se but it gives a foundation to who she is there should be a core to the every character that presents themselves as a major character in your film Henry Cherney's character is a bit of an, an enigma as well. Uh, you worked with him uh, a few years ago now, probably on Ready or Not. Is that where you met him? Uh, yeah. or, because he's perfectly cast in this. And if you don't buy into him, you're not going to buy into the story of the righteous. So tell me a little bit about putting those two puzzle pieces together. He's just so uh, pro as an actor. I just love the way he conducts himself as an actor. He's so professional. He enjoys it. He, he's conscientious. It's all those things that just make it fun. I wrote about music for years, and I used to ask musicians about putting together a touring band, right? So if you're a solo artist, you're going to put together a band to take out on the road. Uh, what do you look for? Are you looking for the best players, or are you looking for uh, the people that you're just going to be a great hang for two years on the road? And inevitably, it was, they got to be a great hang. We need <laughs> great players, but they got to be someone you want to spend some time with. I often say that I'll take... 75% talent, but 100% great person, then the reverse. Yep. Luckily, I got both on, on this one, but if you're working with great people and they're just serviceable as, as artists, it's still gonna be a great product because everybody feels liberated, everyone feels good, everyone's excited to be there, and then stuff might come out of them they didn't even know. Yep. So to have both, I mean, is is, I was just so happy every day. I was like, oh my God, there's no problems. Like there's no problems. Everybody's awesome. And they're doing incredible work. You've been listening to Mark O'Brien on the Richard Krause show. Find his movie, The Righteous at a theater near you starting on June 3rd. Let's meet Sonny McFadden Curtis, director of Broken Vows, Stories of Separation. It's a new documentary that takes you into the lives of women experiencing separation. Find out more at brokenvowsfilm.com. You began production of the film in 2016 following your own separation. Was that in some ways a, a, a way of coping for you? Well, that's a good question, but um, I just want to correct you that I didn't start it following my separation. Subsequently, my separation happened during that time period when I was filming. I actually started the doc because I kept meeting an influx of women who were sequestered in the court system for years or in paralysis and concerned about what was looking around the corner, the unknown. And uh, being an advocate for women and children, um, I wanted to embark on finding answers to questions they had that they didn't know where to turn to find them. What form did that take? Where did you find uh, the subjects that you spoke to in the film? Uh, well, typically when doing documentaries for me, it happens organically. But I went straight to what I would think would be uh, the main source to go to, which was a judge. And I spent uh, multiple hours with him in his chambers asking him questions. And that just, you know, confirmed to me that there were, um, there was a need for more information to get out there and help these people. Because um, after spending time with him, I, I just realized that there was a definite need for this information. What kind of questions did you ask the judge? I asked him, you know, why is it that, or, or what is the percentage of, of people slash women that go into a court um, unrepresented and why? And I asked him, um, was he seeing a lot of separations in his courtroom? Did he see any misuse of power in the courtroom, uh, one spouse over the other? 
And if so, how did he deal with it? I asked him how versed he was on his case files. And is that possible? And, um, you know, the list goes on. And what kind of answers did you get from him? Let's start at the top. I mean, why would you go into a courtroom and not be represented by someone? Is that something that is common? Well, um, he was doing his own poll with judges that uh, worked in his courthouse, and they came up with a number of about 60%. And the, the reasons are because people think they can do it themselves. People can't afford a lawyer or they keep going in and out of court and the cost mounts for starters. You mentioned about becoming familiar with each of the case files. I would imagine if you are a judge and there's a docket in front of you and you've got an entire day's worth of, of cases in front of you, it's not like we see on television. Uh, you know, you're, you're putting people through fairly quickly. Uh, how uh, familiar are you able to get with each case file? What did he say? Well, firstly, as a judge, when you embark on becoming one, you know what you're signing up for. And when you have somebody in front of you that you're you're making a judgment or on their life and for the rest of their life, you know, I believe that you have to be versed. Now, the judge I spoke to said he he is versed on his files, but I know other judges that um, tried, for example, one of the women in my doc, the way he tried, it was so obvious that he did not know her story. He did not even open the file. You're listening to Sonny McFadden Curtis on The Richard Krause Show. Find out more information on her film, Broken Vows, Stories of Separation, and resources for women and families experiencing separation at brokenvowsfilm.com. So not all judges do read them, but there are some out there, like the one I interviewed who is amazing, does. Because they believe that they don't have the time and they can't. And how do you remedy that kind of situation? Yeah, so I believe that... Um, how it would help what would help the situation is by organizing a team around you and have your team member read it and be versed and then sit down meeting with you to summarize the most important things of the case so that you walk and try what you're you're trying them for or what your judgment is going to be. It's not just uh, judges that you spoke to. You spoke to uh, children of separation, husbands, wives. You spoke with a wide variety of people. What kind of stories did your interview subjects tell you? Well, imagine, Richard, if you will, interviewing your own children um, regarding your separation and what they went through. And um, they were very up close and personal and raw in their interview. But I think that it was freeing for them. One of my main subjects in the doc, her name is Colette, and her husband told her one day, uh, and she they have a special needs child, and he came home and told her one day that he is not in love with her anymore, he's going to leave her, and he wants a normal child. And, um, you know, she tried to fight for the marriage, did everything she could. Uh, subsequently, the marriage ended. And then I have another woman whose husband um, came out and identified as um, not being heterosexual in their relationship and what that embarked and how that affected the family and the children. And then I have another uh, separation that was actually amicable. amicable. So, but um, even though it is amicable, um, it doesn't mean that you're not heartbroken. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to show that side of it as well. And then, you know, you have 
another woman, again, who was sequestered in the court system for 13 years. And everything that embarked in that separation and what she dealt with in the court system that will be an eye-opener for people and certainly something for them to learn from. And so one of the press packages that you sent over says that the film uh, asks the question, when a marriage ends, where do you begin? Uh, What is the beginning? I believe that upon separation, even just before ending a separation, one should seek out a good therapist or counselor for both them and their children. I think that also people should reach out to their supports and identify to them exactly what it is that they need from them, whether it be just to listen, help them with the children, um, make food, bring food over to them, you know, offer advice, but let them call the shots in terms of what they need. And I would say that's for starters. And then, and then the other thing would be for the woman in, in this case, to go to her doctor and get some advice and and make sure she doesn't drop the ball in terms of taking care of her health, because this is a psychologically exhausting time in one's life, and she needs to be there for her and her children. And you have uh, a six-volume digital companion resource to the film. Tell me about that. Yeah, so um, I didn't want all this valuable information to fall on the editing floor, if you have it, if you will. So uh, I had 10 hours of footage in total. The film is um, 96 minutes, and the rest of that I compiled into a six-volume digital resource that covers everything from wellness to legal to uh, a sex therapist to um, even, you know, you want to sell your house and all that information. Uh, Some women had not dealt with taxes or accountants before in their marriage. It was dealt by their husband. And so I have an accountant in there. I have so many different areas. And then I also have, you know, Dr. Eddie. Uh, Bill Eddy from San Diego, who speaks about new ways for families, which is a really, as far as I'm concerned, amazing way to separate. Because if you will, um, Richard, if a separation isn't dealt with appropriately, the most vulnerable will suffer, and that is our children. And, and that needs to be at the forefront of one's mind when going through this. That was Sonny McFadden Curtis, director of Broken Vows, Stories of Separation. Find out more information on the film at brokenvowsfilm.com. Big thanks to Sonny. A big thanks to Mark O'Brien. Find The Righteous in theaters as of June 3rd. Check your local listings for a theater near you. Also a big thanks to Eugene Martin. Check out his book, Pure Life, wherever fine books are sold. Of course, and as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 